Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Deborah, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Bowen about her new book, Divided Spirits, Tequila, Mezcal, and the Politics of Production. Sarah has a PhD in sociology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She is currently an associate professor of sociology at North Carolina State University and the director of Voices into Action, the Families, Food, and Health Project. Dr. Sarah Bowen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Sarah, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I'm a sociologist. I study food systems, and I have for a long time, and that includes both production, which is kind of how I got interested in tequila and the angle that I that I came from, but also consumption and consumers and how those two things are linked. How did you come to write Divided Spirits? Well, I have been studying um, tequila, and agave Agave is the main ingredient in tequila for a long time. I did my my master's thesis. I did through an exchange program with the University of Wisconsin and a university in, in Jalisco, which is the home of tequila. And I was in a region where they had not historically cultivated agave, but it was a shortage. And so a lot of farmers were switching over, and the tequila companies had come in and were renting out their land. And so the university there wanted someone to go and interview the agave farmers and see um, why they were doing that and the factors that went into their decisions and how it was working out for them. So, um, so it was kind of the topic that they wanted someone to do. And I did those interviews. And from that, I started thinking, because it was very clear, even from just that um, small project that I did, that that, it, that the, the benefits of tequila and tequila was really growing at that time and was getting really popular, were not trickling down to the farmers in that region, and I kind of assumed to farmers in other places. So when I went back, I went back several years later for my dissertation, and, and then I wanted to study more the tequila industry itself, and in particular, um, the type of institution that protects it, which is called um, Denominations of Origin. And so from there, I studied tequila, and then eventually I went um, and also looked at mezcal. And so I've been looking at these two industries for more than 10 years, so. So that's kind of how I came to write the book. So prior to discussing the history of tequila and mezcal production itself, um, perhaps we should set the stage for our listeners by defining tequila and mezcal as you have in your book. Uh, Could you take us through the history of the legal designation concept of denominations of origin and how that construct has influenced the Mexican model and Mexican identity associated with mezcal and tequila? Sure. Um, So the first thing is that mezcal, uh, all tequila is mezcal because the word mezcal basically means a distilled agave spirit. Um, so there's some debate among academics ab- about when exactly the people in Mexico started distilling spirits out of agave. But um, the main ingredient, as I said just a little bit ago, in both tequila and mezcal is agave. And there are many species of agave. It's endemic to Mexico. And so there are many species all over um, Mexico, and you can also find some in the southwest 
United States. And so there is some debate over how long, when exactly they started doing it, basically whether it happened before the colonialists arrived or after. But there's consensus that it really took off about 400 years ago. Um, so, so they started distilling spirits probably in, in Colima, which is in western Mexico, and then it spread both northward and southward um, as they adapted the techniques to each region. And, um, and so, so there's mezcals made all over Mexico in, in most of the Mexican states, and the techniques uh, vary according to the region. Then tequila was just originally called mezcal from tequila, mezcal de tequila, from te the town of tequila in Jalisco. And near the end of the 1800s, uh, um, tequila started to really take off. It started to industrialize. They started selling it abroad. And so tequila became the best-known mezcal and eventually was protected as its own thing, and they started just calling it tequila. Um, so that's kind of the history of mezcal and tequila. Not all mezcals are tequila, but all tequilas are technically mezcal. Um, then, in terms of denominations of origin, tequila is unique because it's the first that I know of um, product outside of Europe to be protected by, by a denomination of origin. Basically, the idea of denomination of origin is the idea that the taste of um, a food or a drink comes from the place where it's produced and, and that that makes it worthy of, of protection. So a lot of people know about champagne and that champagne can only come from one particular region of, of France and tequila is the same way. Tequila um, has been protected in Mexico since 1974 and so like I said, I, I believe it's the first one outside of Europe and um, the protection limits production of tequila to Jalisco, the state of Jalisco and then parts of four other states. And mezcal is a little confusing because, as I said, mezcal is a generic term that basically means distilled agave spirits. But then in 1994, the Mexican government decided to protect mezcal as something linked to particular states. So um, it started with, I think, five states, and they've expanded a few since then. But, um, but, but the ironic thing about mezcal is that it is protected as a denomination of origin, so there are so there are regions in Mexico where they have a history of mezcal production and where they're still producing this, this spirit that are outside of the denomination of origin. So, that, so in other words, then, if um, I lived in Southern California and I had the agave plant growing in my backyard and I decided to create this um, identical liqueur, I couldn't bottle it as tequila or, or mezcal then, correct? Correct. Right. So you would have to call it something else. And a few times there have been people who have, have done something like that, and they have to use a different word. And even if you were in Mexico, um, if you were in a part that wasn't in the denomination of origin, particular or mezcal, you would have to use another name. And there are other agave spirits in Mexico as well. So there are probably generations of, of farmers or, or small producers out there that have been making this for, like I said, for generations, and, and now they're coming up against uh, this introduction of the, the DOs, the denominations of origin. Yeah, and um, in my dissertation, it was specifically kind of focused on denominations of origin. And one thing I like to point out is that although I'm critical of the denominations of origin as they've been um, applied in Mexico and by the Mexican government, um, and I'm sure I'll talk about that a little later, I think that they can work and they, they have some potential for farmers and small producers. 
because what they can do is that they can protect, you know, they, they make it impossible to outsource production to another place. They kind of link it to a particular place. And in some cases, um, when the farmers and the producers define certain practices that they think are important, they can also, that's another way they can help them protect themselves and give them kind of a foothold in the market. So I think denominations of origin, when carefully and thoughtfully applied and when when they're kind of rooted in what the farmers and the producers want and what they believe about their products, they have they have some potential, but it hasn't worked all that well in the in the Mexican case. So regarding the history of production of mezcal and tequila, what what is the process? How do we go from an agave plant in the field to a fermented uh, beverage swirling in my glass? What is the process and who are the key players? Um, Okay, so so they start out with agave, which is a sort of unique plant because it takes a very long time to mature after it's planted. The tequila is made from the same type of agave, blue agave, or agave tequilana weber. So all tequila is made from that one species. And that species takes six to eight years to mature after being planted. And um, unlike fruit trees or something that might take a little while to produce the fruit, but then they keep doing it year after year, it takes six to eight years, and then you harvest it, and it's done. Um, Mezcal is made from many varieties of agave. The denomination of origin or the, the quality standard is is more open on that point, and some of them take even longer than that. Some of them could take 15 years or 20 years um, to mature. So, but in any case, they start out with agave. They harvest the agave, and agave, um, it looks like a cactus, but it's not actually from the cactus family, but it has these big spikes. So they they harvest the agave and take off the spikes, and um, then they're left with the piña, which they call a piña because once you take off the spikes, it looks a little bit like a pineapple. And then the next step is that they have to roast it. And mezcal traditionally, although not in all places, is is roasted underground um, in a in a dirt pit. Um, but it can also be ro- in tequila. It's often roasted in either a masonry oven, and that was kind of an innovation that um, people in Jalisco and also in some other parts of Mexico came up with in the 1800s. Or in um, a lot of cases, a lot of factories now, especially in the case of tequila and also a few with mezcal, use an autoclave. So they so so that goes much faster than if it's roasting in the ground, obviously. Um, from there, they press out the juices and they might ferment it. Sometimes they do this by hand. Um, sometimes they chop up the agave by hand in the case of mezcal with an axe. Sometimes they use a tejona, which is uh, stone pulled by an animal to, to crush the agave, and sometimes they use um, a mechanical roller mill to sort of press out the juices. Then once they have the juices, they ferment it, um, and that can take a very long time in the case of mescal, when it's, they generally don't add anything to speed it up, or it can be a lot faster um, in the case of, of tequila. And then and the fermentation, in some cases, they have the agave fibers in with the fermentation, and in some cases, they, they do that. It's just the juices, which is more efficient to do it just with the juices, although a lot of people think that if you ferment it with the fibers, that has a positive impact on the um, taste. So they so they uh, roast the agave, they get the juice, they ferment the juice, and then they distill it. And um, the stills also vary. In the case of mezcal, in some places they're using clay pot stills. 
in some regions. In some places, they're using copper pot stills. And in a lot of cases with mescal, it's still it's still powered by um, a wood-burning fire. In tequila, they still have a lot of factories that are using um, pot stills, but they also use column stills. And so um, they distill it at least two times, sometimes more. And then, um, and then they have tequila or mezcal. And so then in terms of the key players, the players are the agave farmers in the case of tequila and in um, their harvest, they, they grow the agave. In the case of mezcal, some of it is cultivated, but some of it is collected wild still. So, so it could be agave collectors. Then there's the producers. In the case of mezcal, they're still very small, um, sometimes just producing um, a thousand liters a year. And in the case of tequila, most are much bigger than that, and some are, are very big. And um, the tequila industry is pretty concentrated, so there's about five companies that are producing the majority of tequila, but um, there's also still some pretty small and traditional tequila companies. And then um, in terms of how it gets to us, a lot of um, tequila companies are owned by multinational um, liquor companies now, so that is a, a big part of it. And in the case of Mescal, um, a lot of the producers are very small, but in order for them to get to the to the U.S. and to foreign markets, a lot of them are still linking with either multinational companies or, or importers with ties to the U.S. because it's kind of compli complicated to get through all of the the regulations and 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 processes associated with um, certification. So tequila and mezcal both, they have to be produced in Mexico. Um, so the farmers and the producers and the workers are going to be located in Mexico, but the foreign influence of um, multinational liquor companies and and um, people with connections in the U.S. and in other countries is, is pretty strong. Sounds like a lot of players in that process. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so when, it, when it comes to creating and defining tequila quality, who's really in charge? Whose rules rule, as you say in your book? So... Um, so as I said, tequila is protected by a denomination of origin, which makes it a little unique. And the denomination of origin is owned by the Mexican state. And so the Mexican state defines exactly where tequila is produced. And it can be produced in all of Jalisco and then parts of four other states. Um, in a lot of cases, in a lot of other examples of denominations of origin, they would include not only the place where something is produced, but also some guidelines about how it's going to be produced. But in the case of, in the Mexican system, that's separate. So in terms of tequila quality, that's really defined by a quality standard. Also established by the federal government, but then it's um, it's a private nonprofit organization that is in Mexico that's in charge of making sure that people are complying with the rules. So that's the Tequila Regulatory Council. And they have they have a big role to play, but um, it's technically the government that's actually establishing the rules. And so one of the things that I wanted to look at in my book was, I think, was about these rules, how they've evolved over time, and who was influencing them. And so I started in 1949, which is when they created the first federal standard regulating tequila quality. And that standard said that tequila had to be made in Jalisco, and it had to be made from um, blue agave, that, that one variety that I was talking about, 100%. And so I kind of looked at that 
evolution over time and how they kept negotiating and how it changed. And um, what I found was that in each negotiation in the tequila industry, it seemed like the rules were becoming less specific and um, that they were kind of being driven by the interests of the big companies who are mostly interested in efficiency and in being able to produce a large volume of tequila and accessing foreign markets. And um, so I kind of traced that process, the rules behind it, and, you know, who this privilege is and kind of who it leads out. It, it, it seems like a, an involving balance of power. So you, you'd mentioned big business. Um, who gains the most in the system's current structure? And then on the flip side, I guess, who, who uh, serves to lose the most? So I would say that, um, so, so like I said, it's the government that's making the rules. And their official policy is, is that they would say they're making the rules in consultation with the different actors in the supply chain. And ostensibly, there are provisions in there to ensure rec- that, that all of the different sectors of the supply chain are represented and they have processes like when they make a new rule, there's a period of public commentary when, when different people can weigh in on the rules. So they are consulting um, ostensibly with people you know, throughout the supply chain. But as I traced the different decisions that have been made, um, it's definitely benefiting and a lot of the decisions are being driven by a handful of companies the big distilleries in Mexico, and then also um, the companies that own them, many of which are not from Mexico. And so, um, the, the, in general, the standards have become less specific over time, and that is good for companies that are trying to, you know, it gives them flexibility, and it allows them to kind of respond to market trends, and, you know, there are some advantages to that in terms of, market share. And um, between 1995 and 2008, tequila, the market for tequila increased by um, 300%. So in terms of market share, it was working pretty well But um, for these companies. But I think who does not gain from this system has been small tequila companies that often can't compete and that, you know, might be using methods that are interesting and, uh, you know, have value that they would say and a lot of people would say in terms of taste and and tradition, but are perhaps not as efficient and um, profitable. And then I think who is especially not getting in the system are the small farmers who a big part of my book was was looking at the farmers and and looking at how production relationships had changed and how they were being pushed out over time. Tequila and mezcal are made from the agave plant, which historically was cultivated by small farmers. In Divine Spirits, you indicate the landscape is changing. What is farming like now in tequila country? Could you tell us about how industrialization has impacted small producers, the agave farmers, Jimadoras, and the other agricultural field workers? Yeah. Um, so, and this was a big focus of mine in in this project, and a lot of my um, research and a lot of my interviews focused on the farmers and the way the agave is cultivated and how that's changed. Um, in the case of tequila, and at the end of the 1800s, a lot of tequila was being produced and, by the people that owned the colonial states, and they had these huge um, tracts of land, and this is true in other parts of Mexico too, and so they owned huge tracts of land and, and were cultivating their agave and then also producing the tequila. Um, after the Mexican Revolution, which um, involved a land reform, 
then a lot of that land was divided up among small farmers into what are called ejidos. So, so after that, which ended in the 30s in Jalisco, um, then there were these small farmers who were cultivating agave, and then they had to sell the agave to the tequila companies. And at first, they didn't want to get involved, and you know they wanted to produce corn, and that created a big shortage in the tequila industry. And then they gradually established contract arrangements and kind of arrangements so that the tequila companies would have their supply of agave. But ever since then, there have been issues with um, managing the supply in the tequila industry. And a lot of that is related to um, what I said before, which is that it takes a long time to mature after being planted. So it's they've had issues in terms of cycles of surplus and shortage for, for quite a long time. A lot of my focus, though, is on what's happened recently. And so um, when I started this research, when I first got interested, they were just coming out of a huge shortage of agave that took place from about 2000 to 2003. And during this shortage, um, which had several different reasons, one was kind of the normal cycles. There was also an early frost and a big disease that sort of ravaged um, a lot of the agave fields in Jalisco. And I think in some parts of Jalisco, the, the supply went down by 50% just in a year. So, And the tequila companies, the smaller ones were going out of business, and even the bigger ones were shutting down operations or reducing operations in some of their factories. So this is a huge problem for the tequila producers. And um, so what they started to do, which is kind of how I got interested in this topic, was that they decided that they were going to start trying to grow their agave themselves. And so they... Um, they moved into areas in a lot of cases where they did not, that were within the DO region, so that these are places where they could produce agave, but they didn't have a history of agave cultivation, and they started growing it them themselves um, under contract. So the farmers would rent out their land, and then the tequila companies would, would come in and bring in workers and, and grow the agave. And um, so, so, one of, so this is a really, this is a, a big shift in terms of production relations. Because by the time I did my um, the interviews for my dissertation, which I interviewed a lot of farmers in 2006, um, by that point there was a surplus of agave because of all the agave that had started to get um, produced during the shortage, and so it was. And then also the tequila companies had started growing their own, and it was getting really hard for those farmers to sell their agave. And so the farmers that I interviewed were independent farmers, mostly small farmers. I picked one community and then I interviewed a group of randomly selected farmers in that community to kind of see how is the denomination of origin and the the tequila industry in general, how is all of this working out for just regular farmers on the ground? And for a lot of them, it was getting very difficult to sell their agave. So they had invested in this agave over six years and they didn't think that the tequila companies would buy from them. So they they were thinking they might have to let it rot in the fields, and all of their money over that period would be um, wasted. And so now um, we're back into another period of, of shortage. So it keeps going up and down, but what concerns me the most is that there really aren't provisions in the industry to ensure that these small farmers get to participate. And the tequila companies, you know, to insulate themselves from these cycles of surplus and shortage, which... Um, our big threat to them have started growing their own agave. And so now there's little to do for the independent farmers besides maybe work as, as a field worker for one of the tequila companies, but especially in the 
areas where they've traditionally produced agave, you know, they don't really want to do that. They want to grow their own agave and have some autonomy over their um, over their production. And I think that has um, that system and those shifts have both social changes, which is kind of what I've talked about, but also environmental implications. Could you take us through an example of the plight of uh, one or two of the of those farmers that you mentioned um, that that you had interviewed? We'd be interested in you know not just the agave farming business itself, but also how the challenges have impacted their identities, their families, and their local communities. Mm-hmm. So one of the farmers I remember very well that I interviewed. Um, he was about 60 years old, and he was working as a day laborer. So he worked six days a week in the um, the agave fields of the tequila companies that they were running out probably from his, his neighbors. He had a little plot of land. So I, um, when I was picking people to interview, I had gotten a list of a population list of all the people that had some land with agave of their own in this town um, from the tequila regulatory council. And then I randomly selected from that list. So this man um, to be included on the list, he did have a little bit of a plot that he was, um, renting here and there, he said. It was kind of scattered little parcels. And so he got to take care of his agave on Sundays. And so he would go there and work on it. And um, and he was, so he was renting it out from the other landowners and he would take care of it. And then at the end, when they harvested the agave, they would, they had an arrangement of sharing the, the, the proceeds from selling the agave. But um, he was frustrated because he was frustrated. He told me he was glad that he that I was interviewing someone who really worked in the fields and not just what he called an engineer, one of the people that worked for the tequila companies. But he was frustrated because he really only had time to take care of his own fields and to really make his decisions on Sundays. And during the rest of the week, he was just a laborer who was working for the tequila companies. And then on top of that, he was also nervous. Um, so he was. He was worried about two things. I think he was worried about what was happening in terms of how agave was being cultivated. So he talked about like some of the techniques he knew. He had a koa, which is one of the tools where they will prune for pet for weeds by hand and said, you know, this is the traditional way and this is what I do in my fields, but they don't do that anymore in um, with the tequila companies. You know, instead they just use their tractors and their herbicides and, and that's how he said it. You know, they could be employing lots more people but they do it much faster their way, but they're taking away jobs from farmers like me. And then he was also worried because he didn't think he might not even be able to sell his agave when it, when it um, matured, because at this point, a lot of the tequila companies weren't buying at all. They were saying their doors were closed. And I met a lot of people like that. Um, some with more land than this person, some that, you know, were a little better off than him. But many people who said, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to survive because the tequila companies aren't really buying from us. And they wanted the government to do something, but they really hadn't made any provisions to ensure the participation of, of these farmers. We, um, we, we touched on this briefly earlier, but what do, you, what do you now see are the top issues in making Mezcal in the shadow of the denomination of origin? Do these issues include concerns over quality? The, uh, the DO boundaries, certification costs? So with mezcal, um, it's, it's very different to kind of shift to talk about mezcal because the way mezcal is produced is very different from, from tequila, mostly because um, the producers, the distilleries of tequila, there are, there are a lot of 
tequila distilleries that are doing things a little differently. And I think there's more now than there were five years ago in terms of um, the kind of practices they're using, in terms of really paying attention to where the agave comes from. So I think that is true in the tequila industry, but uh, mezcal is still very different. And a lot of the producers of mezcal are very small and they're only producing, you know, a thousand liters a year. And so when we look about the other thing with mezcal is that mezcal has gotten really trendy. And so there's a big demand for this mezcal. And I think especially for traditional and artisanal mezcal. But I do think um, there are quite a few issues going on. Um, and I would say the biggest one is exclusion, that many people are excluded. Um, and as I said, I think denominations of origin in theory and when thoughtfully established can be can work well and can protect farmers and small producers. But in the case of Mescal, um, they, ha they have defined a region where that is legally associated with the denomination of origin and people outside of that region are not allowed to call their products mezcal, even though that's the that's what they would call them. That's sort of the local term. It's basically a generic term, but they're not allowed to market their product as mezcal. So that is one way that they're excluding people in regions. And in some of these regions, they've been producing mezcal for many, many generations. Then the other um, thing I think, so that's one way of excluding through the physical boundaries of the denomination of origin. I think then a lot of um, mescal producers are also excluded through the system, and they're actually starting to debate this. They have a new proposal right now about how mescal quality is being regulated, so this may change very soon. But right now, the standard that regulates mescal is um, it's basically modeled directly off the standard that regulates tequila. There are a few changes, um, like most importantly probably in terms of the agave type. But many, many things are exactly the same. And when tequila is being produced by these relatively big distilleries and mezcal is largely produced by very small producers, that doesn't work very well. So um, many, many people are not certified in the case of mezcal. And this is because in some cases, they, the way they produce their mezcal, it's very hard to get in line with the quality standards and the exact parameters. And in some cases, it's because the costs are too great um, and they can't justify their small production size and, and they're, you know, they can't afford the cost. But um, the, the Regulatory Council for Mescal is trying to certify more people, but when I talked to them a few years ago, they said they thought 80% of the Mescal producers were still uncertified. And, um, and so that's another way that a large group of people is excluded. And then probably the, the final way that a lot of people are excluded is in terms of who's benefiting. Um, there, I, I would say that some of the people that import mescal are paying the producers well, and I think that's an important part, um, that the, 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 the high prices that consumers both in the U.S. and in parts of urban Mexico can pay is, is greater than the people in these communities can pay. So it can be an opportunity. And that's important not to neglect. Um, and so in some cases, that's true. But in some cases, there are companies where the mezcal producers really are still not making very much money, even though traditional mezcal is, is, is very high-end now and can go for a really high price. So in some cases, um, the mezcal producers are not profiting from this system, even if they are certified and included. We've seen a rise in the popularity of mezcal uh, with the American craft cocktail movement. 
Could you tell us what American hipsters, bartenders, and realtors are uh, retailers are bringing to the future of artisanal mezcal? Is the United States influencing the politics of production overall? Yeah, I think um, so. I think mezcal is really big lately, and I definitely would not have predicted that when I started this project. And it's just gotten bigger and bigger, even in the last few years. And I think that, um, and so I think there is a group of people, um, kind of hipster, and also just kind of people concerned, and the kind of people that um, are interested in alternative food markets in generally, in general, um, who. There is a high demand for, for artisanal and traditional mezcal. And this is in the U.S. and also in Mexico and places like Mexico City, um, urban Mexico. And I think in some cases that this has been good. Um, as I said, the prices that we're going to pay at a mezcal bar in the United States are much higher than, than people would be able to pay in a rural community, a mezcal producing community in Mexico. And so, in some case, and so we have the opportunity. These high prices open up opportunities for mescal producers and mescal producing communities that I think would not be there without these um, foreign and extra local consumers, both in Mexico and the U.S. But um, but we don't. But the they're not always getting higher prices, and that matters. And I think that um, this kind of concerned consumer crowd. They do know, they know a lot about mezcal, and I think they're becoming more educated as a group. And so I think they know more and more about the type of agave that goes in and the specific practices that are used to make it, and that that can be kind of good. But I think people still don't know very much about how the producers are compensated, and that's hard information um, to figure out. But because of that, I think there's still a lot of inequality in terms of how the mezcal producers are doing within this industry. So as you look forward with your crystal ball, what is next for tequila and mezcal production? Will there be changes to the regulations? Will the market shift? Is there hope for the small agave farmers? I, you know, I, I would say I'm more hopeful now when I look forward than I have been at any point in the last 10 years, um, which kind of surprises me. As I, I said towards the beginning that I got into this project and I, I was looking at the standards and kind of the production relations back in time and the standards going all the way back to 1949 in the case of tequila. And it seemed like it was sort of the same story the whole time. Every decision that was being made was benefiting the, the big companies and sort of oriented towards the industrialization and the standardization of production and, you know, things were not looking good for the agave farmers in the tequila industry or the, the, the farm workers. And then just in the last few years, I think, with this new demand for traditional mezcal, there have been some hopeful shifts. And I think that um, American consumers have been a big part of that. A few years ago, there was a proposal to um, – it was a proposal for a new standard that would prevent – producers from outside the DO regions from even being able to use the word agave, um, which was, you know, already they weren't allowed to use the word mezcal. Now it was going to get even worse. So this is a standard, standard 186. And the small producers in Mexico were concerned and kind of some of their advocates, but there was no reason to think when this started that it wouldn't be more of the same, that it wouldn't be just, you know, it would have been pushed by the big tequila companies and as a way of just further protecting their market share. And I think we would have expected that it would go the same way. And it didn't. 
they failed. And that was one of the first times that I'd seen the the kind of the the interest shift in the direction of the small farmers and the small producers and their advocates. And it was largely because of this huge campaign that grew among people concerned, small producers in Mexico, working with bartenders and retailers and activists in both Mexico and the U.S. And it, they disseminated everything by social media and they held these forums and and they failed. Um, the proposal failed. And so that kind of thing gives me some hope that these interests, because a lot of the talk um, in it was about, you know, consumer interests and how they needed to protect traditional producers and they needed to, to, to watch out what was happening because of this increased demand for traditional artisanal mescal. And so on one hand, that gave me hope. I think it was one of the first things that I'd seen go that way. On the other hand, I'm still a little nervous about it. And I think for two reasons. One is that um, the rhetoric was still about consumer demand and, you know, how we need to avoid alienating the market for traditional mescals. And while that had a positive effect, I think it's dangerous to have that be the driving force. It shouldn't be the only force because, um, you know, there need to be more producers involved in this conversation and, and looking at things from, from multiple perspectives in terms of rural development and workers' rights and environmental sustainability. And I think the rhetoric was still just about consumers. And that ended up benefiting this group, but it, it makes me nervous because it doesn't seem like a very sustainable strategy. Then the other thing that makes me nervous is that three years later, it's happening again. There's a new proposal with a new number and a slightly different variant. This one is um, standard 199. But again, they're basically trying to prevent producers outside of the denominations of origin from um, from being able to call what they make, from using the word agave. And now they've proposed that they use another word, comil, which is not familiar to the producers or consumers or anyone. And so um, there's another outcry against it. And I I'm hopeful that, that this one will fail as well, but but it does make me nervous because it feels like the push is, is sort of relentless. But um, despite all of that, I think that the fact that we're having these conversations about traditional producers that I think a lot of people in the mezcal world are definitely trying to not go in the direction of tequila and to do something that would value traditional methods and small producers a lot more than, than has happened in the case of tequila, I think... Um, I think it does make me hopeful, and I think that things are are shifting. So, so I'm hopeful here. Well, Sarah, we've taken up a lot of your time. My final question before we sign off is, what are you working on now? Um, well, I I keep saying that I'm gonna move away from the world of tequila and mezcal, but I just can't because it's, <laughs> it's too interesting, and and so I'm still doing a little bit of work with that. I'm. Not, I'm a little bit involved with this. I'm trying to support this movement of other people um, in Mexico and in the U.S. in terms of, of fighting this this regulation, um, Standard 199. And I'm also doing some work with the Tequila Interchange Project, which is is the one of the organizations that that's involved with that movement against the standard. But they also have some work that they want to do on the Jimadores, the agricultural workers, and so we're hoping that we can do some research on to better understand and really define how they're doing their pay. I mean, we know they're doing bad, but to have the research base to really um, have that empirical basis for how they're doing. And then they want to do a campaign to um, 
get companies to pledge to pay the Himadores more and, and, and in terms of their rights. So I think that's, for me, that's a really interesting mix of research and how research can be used by other people to make a difference, which is um, kind of exciting to me. And then I'm also doing a big project um, you mentioned at the very beginning, Voices into Action, which is um, a big project about food access and food insecurity with um, mothers in North Carolina. So that's very different from my work um, on tequila and mezcal. But I think in terms of thinking about inequality and the food system, and in this case, more the consumption end, but how that is tied to these bigger factors, but there, there's, there's, uh, there is some overlap between those two projects. So those are my two Two big things right now. Well, Sarah, those sound like great projects. And again, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Congratulations on, on your book, Divided Spirits, Tequila Mezcal and the Politics of Production. Have a great day and take care. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.